And there we go. So we've been in this new series called Ridiculous Faith. And um, last week I thought was kind of fun to talk about the prophet Elisha. And Elijah, and I told you all to help me with that, because even as preachers, we get tongue-tied sometimes, and Elijah, Elisha, Elijah, Elisha. You know, it's, and, and I'm like, why would, why would the Bible do that? And then someone said, well, you named your kid Bria Brianna. Bria Brianna, Brianna, Bria. Like it always, yeah, I said, all right, fair enough, touche. I get it. But Elisha and Elijah, right, we're talking about this transfer of, of blessing, this, this transfer of anointing, and um, Elisha was now Elijah's protege, right? He, we did the cloak thing last week where he takes his cloak and places it on Elisha, and that was sort of a big deal, right? That was sort of saying, you know what, now I'm done, I'm passing the mantle to you, Elisha, and Elisha was like, bring it on. Elisha wasn't like, oh man, all the, Elisha's like, give me a double portion, God. Well, I saw what Elijah did. He called down rain from heaven. He had it stop raining for like three years. And then he had the the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, and that showdown. Elijah did some cool stuff. Elisha's like, I want to do double that. Bring it on, God. I'm ready for what you have. And I love that about Elisha, you know. He gets me motivated. And um, I was actually reading a few things uh, this week. And I was reading about, um, y'all know who Mark Zuckerberg is? Y'all, y'all know who he is? He's the Facebook guy, right? He kind of like owns it, I guess. Or Anyway, there's a guy in charge of all the Facebook stuff, and that's Mark Zuckerberg, right? And I was reading about how um, a few months ago, he was actually fined $5 billion. That's a billion with a B. $5 billion by the FTC for use of private data without permission. So y'all know what's going on here, right? He got in a lot of trouble, um, $5 billion worth of trouble, and it was actually the second largest fine ever levied by the FTC. Now, before you start to feel sorry for old Zuck, um, it actually caused, that fine caused the Facebook stock to rise 2%, which caused the value of Zuckerberg's own personal shares to increase by $1.5 billion to bring his net worth to over $84 billion. And I read about that, and I couldn't help but think back on the story of Zuckerberg and, the, and his life and how this all transpired. You see, Facebook, before, right after it started taking off, right, it started getting popular, he had a, a partner, and his original partner, he said, you know what, we should sell. We've been offered a million dollars to sell this thing. And he's like, Mark, we should, we should sell, man. But the president, Sean Parker, the president of Facebook, said, you know what? You shouldn't be thinking of millions of dollars, Zuck. You should be thinking about billions of dollars. And, well, of course he was right. You know, like I said, today he's worth $84 billion, and he's only 35 years old, just a couple years younger than me. I did not expect, what'd you say, double? Y'all pray for Randy. But the point is, through all that, that Zuckerberg was, was willing to wait, right? He was willing to wait, because he believed that he, if he were patient enough, and this happens to a lot of people, you know, if they, they have the foresight to wait, and they're patient enough, he believed that there was a lot more to be had. So the point of our series today is, it was similar to the way Elisha looked at things. You know what he said? You know what? If I was willing to wait and be patient and wait upon the Lord, there was so much more that God had for Elisha. 
I mean, we dipped our toe in the beginning of what God had for Elisha last week. And so one of the things I hope we learn for, from this series in the life of Elisha is that we, meet, we need not to be so quick to trade in God's purpose or his destiny or his plan, however you want to phrase it, for our lives, for, for things of this life or temporary pleasures or treasures. Oftentimes we miss God's plan, actually, because we're too impatient to wait for it. And we want it now, right? We're a microwave society, I always say. We want things now. We want it now, we want it today, we want it now, we want it instantly. We're more interested in instant or selfish gratification. Like, what, what can I get right now? You know, I need this fixed now. What do you mean I can't fix it now? We'll get a new one. Well, just wait and this can be fixed. Never mind fixing it, give me a new one. How often times do we do that? You know, the, the TV repair shops are non-existent anymore, right? Because why? It's just more economical and better to buy a new one. Some guys are waiting for their TV to break. Oh, please. <laughs> but God does have a purpose and a plan for your life. The scripture, scripture is clear. He has a plan. But in order for that to take place, we have to learn to wait upon the Lord in a lot of times. There are many times we won't even realize until we get to heaven, you know, that, we, <laughs> that we, we should have waited on some things, probably. It means that Basically, all this means that everything is not about right here and right now. It's hard for us to wrap our brain about that, you know, the fact that there is an eternity, but some of the blessings and some of the things that God wants to bless you with for your faithfulness to him are not going to take place until we're on the other side in glory. We may not see it here. But that's where you have to be willing to trust God and know that he loves you. Know that he's for you and not against you, as the word says. Know that he wants the best for you. And listen, God has a great plan for your life, but we'll never discover what that is if we're not boldly seeking after him, giving him all of our attention. Last week, remember, we said that we don't have to fully understand to fully obey. Remember, we, we could step out on faith. And it, a lot of times, if we wait to understand everything, or if God revealed everything to us about what was going for the next step, we wouldn't do it. Because, whoa, God, I'm not, I'm not ready to go there. I, mm. But we don't have to understand fully to obey immediately, we said. We talked about it last week with Elisha. We started this whole series on the prophet, and we said, you know what? Don't get confused. Don't confuse Elijah with Elisha. And you guys helped me with that. Elijah came first, we said. And now God would raise up this prophet to do even more than Elijah. And his name is Elisha. Elisha symbolically put his cloak on, we said. And accepted the Lord's anointing. In fact, was waiting for the Lord's anointing. And so Elijah, Elisha's out in the field and he's working. Remember we talked about it. See, I just did it. Elisha was out in the field working. Remember we told you, know, told you that he, he, was a, he, he had to be a wealthy. His family had to have some money because they had 12 pair of oxen. Right? They have all these oxen and, and that's not... Oxen weren't cheap back then, and the plow that he had and, and all of that, you know, he's a wealthy guy. And remember what he said he was looking at all day. Help me out. Oxen rears. 
Y'all took it another place, but I'm not going there this morning. Oxen rears. But, but remember, he had, some, he had some wealth. His family had to be doing okay. Elijah takes that cloak off and, and says, you know what? The covering that was on me now, Elijah says, the covering that was on me is now on you. And it's on you, Elisha. The, the ball is in your court now. The anointing is on you. Get ready, because God's about to use you in a mighty, mighty, mighty way. And Elisha didn't respond by saying, okay, that's nice. It's a nice cloak. All right. That's fine. Elijah didn't, Elisha didn't do that. Elisha was all in from the very beginning. So many times we step across the line of faith, right? And we, we follow Christ and we're like, okay, well, I'm a Christian now. I'll go to church on the weekend and, you know, maybe serve somewhere and I'll get plugged in. But this isn't my life. I mean, I've, I've crossed the line of faith, right? I'm a follower. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm stepping over. I believe Jesus. You died for me. I want to live for you. We, we make that commitment. And then it's back to life as usual, right? It's the kids. It's the school. It's the job. It's the whatever. And, and our life of faith is just another compartment in our lives. That's what happens a lot of times. We just sort of dip our toe in. We're like, okay, well, well, give me the free ticket out of hell, right? Okay, receive Jesus. Yep, all that stuff. Get all that. We come to a, we cross the line of faith, as we say, and then it's back to life as usual. I'll just put that in that compartment, and uh, this is my job, this is my kids, this is my this, this is my that. This is just kind of something that I'll take kind of part in on the weekend, and, and then I'll go back to regular life, not really talk about Jesus much to anyone, but just sort of dip my toe in. That's not what Elisha did. Elisha was all in. Elisha walked away, literally walked away, remember we said, from everything to pursue his calling with the Lord. Remember he took his 24 oxen, what did he do? He butchered them, right? He actually fed a lot of people. You could probably feed a lot of people with 24 oxen. I mean, good night, how big are oxen? They're big! Feed a lot of people, he fed them. In fact, to cook the meat, he actually burned the farming equipment, remember that? And some people say, well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he sell it to make sure, you know, that he could live off? Elisha said, you know what? Remember, he, he planned it. There was no back door. There was no plan B. Like, I'm burning the, burning the plows, man. I'm burning the plows and killing the cows. It's over. There's no plan B. I am following Jesus, period. And there was no returning to that old life at all. He's making a strong statement, not only to himself, but to God, Elijah, and to all of his friends who are watching that, you know what, guys? I am all in. I'm all in. When it comes to this following after God thing, Elisha said, I am all in. I'm all into what God has for my life, and he didn't want any way to be, to be there's no plan B. There's no net. There's no fallback plan. We saw that he was bold enough to ask for that double portion. And he said, you know what, I want this double portion of God's miracle-working power. God, what I really want you to understand this morning, that Elisha was actually a foreshadowing, track with me, Elisha was a foreshadowing of the greatest of all prophets, Jesus. In fact, um, all the Old Testament prophets were actually just a foreshadowing of what was to come. And I I want you to see today the kind of heart that it takes to receive God's best. I'm sure that if you're a believer, you're a Christian, you know, of course you want all that God has for your life. At least I hope you do. 
You know, I can't imagine, and yet I know that it's true, and I know that it happens, like I said a second ago, people step across that line of faith, and then it's just kind of sort of something that they do on the weekends. It's kind of half-hearted, you know, just dipping a toe in. It's kind of maybe, maybe in a little bit, and I just want a little bit from God. I mean, this isn't going to take over my life. I'm not like going to, this is just going to kind of be something that we do. And I want you to know that, you know, it, well, you might say to God, well, yeah, yeah, I would accept the blessings from God, of course. And I would like to God to bless my life over here. And I'd like him to bless my life over there. But, you know, friends, that's not the life that God really wants for us. It's not the life that God wants for you and for me. God wants us to be all in. This thing about Elisha was, he was bold in his faith and he wasn't timid. God just doesn't want a small piece or a small portion. I don't want a small portion, Elisha said. I want a double portion, God, of everything that you have for me. A double portion for everything that you did for Elijah. I want you, God, to use me like I've never been used before. I want you to use me in ways I never thought even possible before. And this was not some small portion. Elisha wanted this double portion. He wanted all of the blessing. He wanted all of the direction. He wanted all of his life to be serving God. The question we need to ask is, is my heart in the right place to receive God's blessings? We will walk through this this morning. Because when it comes right down to it, when it comes to the thing that really matters, it's the condition of your heart. You know, we get to thinking that how I act is important, or what I say is important, or what I do is important, what I believe to be true is important. But what it really comes down to, the reality is, God's interested in the condition of your heart. Do you have a heart after God? Do you, you know, remember David, King David in the Old Testament? He messed up royally. If you look at it, you look at his whole life story, he messed up a lot of times. And yet, the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. Why did he have that reputation? Because even though he blew it a few times, more than a few, even though he made mistakes, and his heart was always to come back to God. His heart was always, ah, I blew it, God, and he came back to God time and time and time again so that God could look back at his life and say, you know what, David was a man after my own heart. And that's what God's looking at for you, for you and for me. He wants us to have a heart for him. A few principles about receiving God's blessing or God's best. I really want you to capture these. And so let's start by taking a look at our scripture for this morning. It's in 2 Kings if you could go to Second Kings chapter 4, we're going to look at this account that happened between Elisha and a, and a family from Shunem. Second Kings chapter 4, about verse 8. When you have it, say amen. Oh boy, I got a long way to go this morning and it's already 1136. 2 Kings chapter 4 says this in verse 8. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. Verse 9, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. 
she said this, so, hey, let's make a small room on the roof and put in a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him, and that way he can stay there whenever he comes to visit. So whenever Elisha would come through town, this family, this woman and her family, you know what, have him stay with us. Because we want to hear, we want to be around this guy. He's a holy man of God. He's got some things to say. And we want to be there when he says it. So you know what? Let's put him up. Every time he comes through, this is what we're doing. Let's put a room on the roof, bed, lamp, the whole nine. He can do his thing in there. We'll feed him. We'll we'll take care of him. Whenever he comes through town, we want to be his stopover. We We want to be around this person because he's a man of God. And so this woman recognizes he's a holy man. Elisha's been coming by in the family, and she's like, whoa, the Lord's spirit is all over this man. She says, you know what? Let's get him to stop here. He'll come through for dinner all the time anyway. Let's make this room so he has a place to stay. And the first principle that I want you to see this morning is, this is the first point. You can write this down if you want to. You can, if you're not a note taker, you can write it down anyway. Um, But the first point I would like to make this morning is we can't make God move in our lives. But we can make room for him to move. I love that. I'm going to give you a couple principles today, and this might carry over into next week too. But this one is my favorite. We can't make God move in our lives. We can't make him, God, you need to do this. We can't make him move. But we can make room for him to move. We can prepare for him to move. We can make it possible for him to move. No one can dictate where God's spirit is going to move. I mean, you know, why in the one world, why in the world does one person's prayer get answered immediately and someone else's seems to take forever? I don't know. We can't make him move. We can't make him do this and not do that. And regardless of what some preacher tries to tell you, there's no magic formula for getting God to move in your life. There's nothing to memorize. There's no formula for us to learn. It's not like, well, my prayer was answered immediately and yours wasn't because you didn't do it the way I did it. You know, if you do these steps to prayer, then your prayer will be answered. It's absolutely not true. There's no formula. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't tell where it's coming from and you can't tell where it is going. You can't stop the wind. You can't catch the wind in your hand. You know, you're outside on a windy day and you're like, oh, I I feel the wind. It's all around me. I can feel the wind. And I want to just catch a handful of it. You can't. While you can't capture the wind, and think of this, in light of what we see here, you can't make God move in our lives, but we can make room for him to move. You cannot capture the wind, but you can raise a sail. You can't capture it, but you can prepare and you can can get ready for the wind and you can harness the wind, but you can't capture it, but you can raise a sail. I like the analogy of a wave. I I heard some preacher do this and I just grabbed on. I'm like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a surfer is always looking and watching for the waves, right? They're always looking and watching. Anybody take a beach vacation this year? Just go to the beach for a little while. You see the waves coming in, and you see the people out there. The waves were kind of 
I don't know, the waves were choppy this year for some reason. And, and the waves would come in and, and, and surfers sit there and watch for the waves, right? They sit on their board and they watch. And they can tell, seasoned surfers can tell what's going on out here. And the surfer will go down and, and he's got his surfboard and, and the surfboard, surfer goes down and he's ready to go. You know, he's got the thing on his ankle and he's ready to roll. You know, does he just go to the edge of, of, the, of, of the sand there and the beach and, and when the wave crashes right here, he jumps on his board and hopes for the best? No. The surfer gets on his board and he swims out, right? He gets to swim out. And the surfers find that wave and they know right when to grab that wave. He swims out and he gets as close to that wave as he can possibly get. And he gets close and he's got the rope on the ankle so it doesn't, you know, if he goes head over heels, the board doesn't take off on him. But he starts to get this momentum right on, this, on the wave. And you'll, you'll have to hit play on the video I'm going to go to, I think. Um, but I, just, just to kind of get a picture of what, what a big wave looks like, or a long wave, as this video plays out, you can hit it anywhere on, the, on the, your screen or this one. Yeah, so there he goes. So there's a the little surfer guy. And this is one of the longest waves ever recorded on video. Longest by, by, by length. And the wave starts to rise. He jumps on his board. He gets ready to receive that wave, right? He paddles out like crazy. Looks at the wave, gets on the wave, and starts to go. And he gets all the momentum out of that wave. I mean, he's going and he's going and he's going. I mean, I imagine this guy was probably like, this is crazy. You know, and, and I mean, honestly, Ron, one of our, 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 our lead tech guy in the back, Ron Rogers, he said, I don't know how you captured the footage of me getting this wave accurately. I didn't even see you guys out there filming me. But there's Ron. That's what he told me. I can only go by, he's, an, he's a godly man. And I assume he's telling me the truth. But that, that guy just kept on going and going and going and going. And the surfer gets out there and he rides that wave for all the momentum that he has. Well, in the same way, there's a wave of God's spirit that moves. And we, especially here in this church, I know it. I see it. I feel it. I know it. I see it in people. They come to me with stories and accounts and they want to ride that wave. We want to ride that wave of God's spirit that's moving when it's moving in a, in, a, in a gathering, in a family, in a place like this. We want to grab onto that wave. We don't need to see that. Who knows why that happens? Get me to the next one, okay? All right. But the same way the surfer grabs on the wave, grabs the wave, gets me out of this slide, please. <laughs> but the same way that that wave is moving through, Amen. This is exactly what this woman's talking about. You know what? I know, I sense the spirit moving on this man and in this place. And we're going to just be opportunistic here. We're going to jump on the wave and we're going to ride it. And we're going to do whatever God wants us to do. And, and we said that when the momentum runs out, it runs out, right? So when, when we're going to, but as a church, we're going to get on the wave of God's spirit. When he starts to move, we're going to get there. We're going to make room for God's spirit to move. We can't make his spirit move, but we're going to prepare the way. We're going to raise the sail. We're going to jump on the wave and we're going to get ready. We're going to prepare so that when God's spirit does move, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. 
And it's exactly what this woman is saying. God's spirit is all over this man. I got, we've got to be as close to the man of God as possible. But we, we, we can't predict and we can't certainly make God move anywhere. But we, just like the surfer headed into that wave, he's swimming as fast as he can into that wave. Here it comes. Here it comes. And he gets on the wave and he rides it. And that's exactly what we should be doing as a family. And even as individual Christians, believers. We shouldn't be sitting on the shore and folding our arms saying, you know, well, you know, God's really not doing anything, so I haven't felt his spirit in a while. And, you know, I really don't think he's going to. And, no, we got to swim out. We got to get ready. We can't predict it, but we sure can make room. Like the lady, let's build a, build a room on the roof. I don't know if anything will happen, but we got to get ready. We can't make his spirit move, but we sure can make room. And we're going to make room for God's spirit to move in this place. Where is God's spirit moving? Put the sail up and when it does move, get ready. Swim toward it. Move toward it. Pastor, are you telling me that I have to attend church? Be here for God's spirit to move? Absolutely not. But at the same time, if you are looking for a move of God's spirit, you go where he's moving. So no, I, I, can't, I can be at home, I can be praying for God to move in my life, I can be praying for God to, to answer prayer, I can pray, be praying for God to, to work a miracle in my life, and at the same time, because I know God's Spirit is moving in a body of believers called the church, I want to get close to the move of God's Spirit as I can. We can't predict it, but we can go where it's moving. When we see that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is moving somewhere, where we see how He is moving, we can then go get and be a part of that. And not just stand on the shore and wait. Here's another example. Let's, let's say that they're, you're having, someone is having trouble in their marriage. And here's what happens typically. You know, couples will start having some, some disagreements, some, some rocky times, as we say, difficulty, and then there's the tension in the home. And because there's tension in the home, there's, there's a little bit of arguing, there's some, there's some tension, and because there's arguing, it's like some people say, you know what, well, I'm, I'm not even going to church this week. So instead of going in toward the wave, they actually pull away. So when people have a problem with someone, some, something someone said, or problem in a relationship at home, or they start to have tension, or there's something going on, instead of coming to the place where God's Spirit is moving, they actually say, ah, you know what, I'm good. I'm not really in the mood. We're not, we're not sitting here as a body waiting to judge your life, and neither is God. God wants you to come where His Spirit is moving. So couples, if they're having that problem, they start attending church, they, stop, they start pulling back. And the very, it's the very opposite of what they need to do. Because one of the biggest problems, and, and you know, there can be all kinds of problems in a marriage relationship, but I think as, as you get there and as you start pulling back and don't start coming into where God's Spirit is moving, you realize that the, the main problem is that, well, Christ isn't the center of your marriage anymore. He may not be at the center of your home. So you need to head into the wave. Go where God's spirit is moving. And we need to be a church, a family, a body, as much as we can, as close to the spirit as we possibly can, because we want Christ to be at the center of our individual lives and individual homes. 
We want Christ. So we're going to get as close to God and as close to the Spirit of the Lord moving as we possibly can. And we say, you know what? I'm going to go to church to get where spirit, the Spirit of God is moving. And let me just throw this out there. I am thankful and I love it that we provide an online church experience for people. Because there's been many times when we're out of town, I've been out of town, and, and I've tuned in and watched the service online, and I get blessed. You know, that, that's a blessing to have the cameras, and we try to make it as good as we can for people to have this good online experience, you know, free of distractions of whatever can happen. And we, we really strive. And we have an online communi- uh, congregation that tunes in every single week. In fact, we've seen people actually saved because they watched our church service online. That is amazing to me, and I love that. But I'm telling you right now, if that's all you do, you're not swimming out to the wave. You're not swimming out into the wave. You guys need to come. You need to come where the Spirit of God is moving. And if you're watching us from somewhere else, right, you can't actually physically physically come here, get plugged in. Make it a part of your routine. Make it a part of your dedication to the Lord to plug in to a local church body of believers. Swim into the wave. If you're only experiencing this online and your only church experience is something you watch, you're not swimming into the wave. You can't force God's spirit to move, but you can certainly be open to where God's spirit is moving and acting. I have no control over the wind, but I can put up a sail. So yes, we want to make room and time for God to move in our lives. Our scripture said this. 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 12. <clears throat> so he said to his servant. Elisha had a servant named Gehazi. I love that name. Call the Shunammite. This is the woman. Call the Shunammite. So he called her. And she stood before him. Elisha said to him. Tell her. That you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my people. Like she said, no, I'm good. Like, I'm good. And then, so Elisha, he's like, well, what can we do? Like she's made this room for us. She's fed us this whole time. She's taken such good care of us. Elisha said, what can we do for her? And Gehazi said, she has no son. And her husband is very old. Okay. So maybe now Elisha sees, sees a need that maybe he could help meet as this anointed prophet man of God. Elisha says to his assistant, you know this woman has been so kind to us. She's blessed us. What can we do to bless her? Now remember, the lady is pretty well off, right? It said that she's a well-to-do woman. And she didn't want for much. She had about anything she needed and wanted except for one thing. She didn't have a son. And remember, in that culture, that's a big deal. In those days, that's a big thing. Because there's no one to carry on the family name if you don't have a son. It's kind of a big deal. 
You don't have anyone to carry on the family inheritance and the family line and the name. It just kind of ends. If there's no son, there's ends with you. So it was a big deal. So the woman didn't have a son. She felt kind of incomplete. And so she doesn't ask Elisha for a son. And yet I'm sure Elisha knew that this was a heavy, heavy burden in her life. In fact, in verse 16, about this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. Whoa. What does she say? Oh, thank you, Elisha. Ah, here's what she said. No, my Lord. She objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. What's that about? Elisha says, you're going to hold a son this time next year. And the woman says, that's not funny. She says, don't mess with me. That's really what she's saying. Elisha, (laughs) that's not funny. Don't mess with my emotions like this. I mean, you can't. Come on. I can't handle that. Don't mess with me. That's not funny. Go one verse later. But the woman became pregnant. And then the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. She does indeed have a baby boy to her very, very old husband. Fortunately, the Bible spares us the details. Is anyone awake this morning? The child grew and one day went out to his father, who was with the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. The servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother. And the boy sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. Whoa. So she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door and went out. What's going on here? I told you, Elisha, don't mess around. Here we go. So she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and a donkey. I got to go to the man quickly and return. Well, husband, ah, this came out of nowhere. The, this, this story just comes alive to me. That comes out of nowhere. Why go to him today, the husband said. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. Like, why do you need to go see the guy? It, that's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on and don't slow down for me unless I tell you. Can you see what's going on here? Her son just died. The one that Elisha said what she would have. She said, don't mess around with me. She had the son, and now the son is dead. So she's going to go tell, and she laid him on his bed. I'm going to stick him in here, and I'm going to go get, I'm going to tell Elisha what I think. So then, verse 25 So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, Hey, look, there's the Shunammite. Hey, run out to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Everything good? Your child okay? Everything working out? Is everything all right? She goes, Oh, everything's all right. Remember, the servant went out. The servant, not Elisha, the servant. She didn't have no time for Gehazi. She had no time for this servant. The servant went out, hey, everything okay? Oh yeah, everything's fine. Out the way. Out the way. Oh, everything's fine. When she reached the man of God, Elisha, at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. And Gehazi, right, being a good 
he's his servant, he's looking out for his boss, came over to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Here she comes. Did I ask you for a son? My Lord. This is in the Bible. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise up my hopes? I mean, I can see the hand on her hip, the backbone going to slip. She is in his face a little bit right here. Didn't I, did I ask you for a son? Didn't I tell you, don't get my hopes up? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak in your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone, don't just beeline to where this boy is and lay my staff on the boy's face. And the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. She got up, so he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. The boy has not awakened. Remember, she tells Elisha's assistant that everything was fine. Remember that? Why does she lie? Why does she say everything was fine? Everything's obviously not fine. She's upset. Why in the world does she lie to Gehazi? She doesn't want to talk to Gehazi. She doesn't want, she doesn't, she knows he's going to try and stop her from getting to Elisha. So she doesn't want to talk to him. She wants to get right to the man of God. And one of the things I love about scripture, it just tells it the way it's happening. It doesn't sugarcoat, it doesn't try to hide it. We see that Elisha also failed the first time. He sends his staff with Gehazi. And I love the little play on words that I thought about the other night. You know, sometimes the pastor got to go. He can't send his staff. Sometimes it got to be the pastor. It can't be Gehazi. It can't be one representing. Sometimes the pastor got to go. Elijah tells the woman, I'm sending my assistant. Elijah says, take my staff, pray for the boy. He takes his staff, it doesn't work. I mean, the staff thing worked with Moses, why wouldn't it work here? But Elisha goes to there himself, and in verse 32, so Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, he shut the door on, on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And then he got on the bed, and then he lay on the dead boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and he stretched out himself on him, and the boy's body grew warm. And Elisha turned away and walked back and forth for a little bit, and then he did it again. And the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi, and he he said, call the Shunammite. And when he did, she came, and he said, take your son. And she came in and fell at his feet and bowed to the, to the ground and she took her son and went out. This is what I'll leave you with. Gehazi was, the Shunammite woman was torn up. Torn up. She was, I mean, wretched with grief and anger and she had, I mean, she was boiling up. You can feel it in the text, right? I mean, I can feel it. She's going, assistant, out of the way. I'm going to Elisha. I got to go to the man. We got to figure this out. 
you gave me this boy and now he's dead? The blessing of God is often found in the place of our weakness. The blessing of God is often found in the place of our weakness. If you remember, I said this woman was pretty well off. She didn't want for anything. She received miracles from the Lord. And both of them take place in the area of life where she had absolutely no control. She couldn't have a son. All the money in the world, she couldn't control that. All the influence in the world that she might have had, anything that she had, could not purchase a son for her. In, in the first miracle, God stepped in with the birth of a son. The second miracle was, was when God did what just happened. God raised that boy from the dead after he had died. Both of these miracles had to do with this boy, and both were, were in a place that she had no control. She had a weakness. She couldn't develop a child. She couldn't buy a child. She couldn't also bring her child back to life. She was in a place of weakness. She was in a place of weakness. And so many times we depend on our own self-sufficiency to get us out of the jam or to get us what we want. The point I'm trying to make is because of our wealth and our self-sufficiency, remember the people in America, we live you know, wealthier than any other country on, on planet Earth, right? Most of the world lives on $2 of the day, $2 a day, equivalent to our $2. And 80% of the world lives on $10 a day compared to what we have. So we're wealthy, right? We're wealthy. We think a lot of times that we can just buy our way out, right? We get, what do I need to do? Who do I make the check out to? How do I get out of this situation? We, we rely on our self-sufficiency. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need this person's help. We think that we can just kind of get out of it on our own. And it's those feelings of self-sufficiency in whatever area that might be that lead to these feelings of independence that we don't need anybody else and we sure don't need God. I'm my own man, my own woman. I can do my own thing. More oftentimes, saints, let me tell you this, it's, it's not our sin that necessarily, individually, precisely keeps us out of heaven. It's our false sense of righteousness that we have, the false sense of self-sufficiency that I think we can do it on my own. Watch this, in Revelation chapter 3, I love this, Revelation is the book on the last times, right? This is, you all know what Revelation is. Chapter 3 says exactly what I'm trying to get across to you this morning. It says this, Revelation chapter 3, you say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. This is in the Bible. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is applicable to every single one of us. You say I'm rich. You've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. No matter how rich you think you are, no matter how well off we think we are, the reality is that the state of our soul without Christ, we need Christ. The state of our soul without Christ is this. You think you have what you need? You don't have what you need. Here's what you need. Christ. And it's usually God's strength shows up where where we are weak. We think we're self-sufficient. That's actually a weakness. I'll close with this. How many times have I said that this morning? There's a book that that talks about the life of Abraham Lincoln. And they said that the Lincoln who entered office in 1861 was a very different Lincoln than the one that died in 1865 in terms of his relationship with God. And the kind of faith in God that comes through the second inaugural address and the resolve to do God's will toward the end of his presidency, it was not there in 1861. The author said the difference came in 1862 at the death of his 11-year-old son, Willie. 
He said this is one of the first times in Lincoln's life that he felt absolutely powerless to do anything about the situation. But it was in that brokenness that taught him to seek a God bigger than himself. And this newfound belief in God and his purposes gave him the courage to issue the Emancipation Proclamation because he knew in his heart that that's what God wanted him to do. Again, I'm just saying that quite often God uses the areas of our lives that we have no control over. He uses those areas to bless us, to use us. Faith is a mixture of peace and holy discontentment. After the Shunammite's son dies, she tells her husband to get a donkey. She's going down to see Elisha. Elisha's assistant comes. He gets in the way. She says, nope. This is not what we're doing. She didn't want to be detoured by the assistant. She didn't want to be, she wanted to get to the prophet. And the only way to get any type of godly communication, the Holy Spirit to come, was for someone, God's Holy Spirit resided in the prophet and the priest or a king in the Old Testament. All that changed when Jesus came. All of that has changed. I want to leave you with this story. I hope some of this has made sense to some of you. I had more, but we're going to I'm going to leave you with this story. A great example of what I'm talking about. We have to come to a place in our life that we have holy discontentment but inner peace. Peace that surpasses all human understanding, that only comes from God. We can have that peace, that confidence that God is in full control. We surrender to him, we believe him, we know what he said, we believe what he said he's going to do, he's going to do. We believe that he saves us, he sanctifies us, we live for him, and yet we can still be upset about things. We can hear about maybe some child that's been abused, and that can be unsettling. We can still get upset, about things, but ultimately know that God has full reign and full control. There's a peace that comes, but there's still sort of a holy discontentment of things that aren't lining up with the things of Scripture and how God has designed human life. You okay with that? Great example. Here it is. Some of you will be familiar with this. And it's a true story about a name that you'll recognize, I hope. His name is Horatio Spafford. How many have ever heard that name before? Yeah? Okay, a few. Horatio Spafford, he was a successful businessman in Chicago. He had a lovely wife. He had five children. Um, This was back in 1871, the 1800s. And tragedy struck Horatio Spafford's life when his son died of pneumonia. And that would be horrific. I mean, that's horrific. I can't, I mean, can you even wrap your head around it? Like, okay. But later that same year, they lost their business to the Great Chicago Fire. And then later on, two years later, in 1873, the family, still grieving from the loss of their son and still reeling from the loss of all their business, they just decided, you know what? We need to get away. We need a vacation. We need to travel. And so that wasn't that easy back then, but they decided to go from ship, via ship, to England to visit D.L. Moody, actually, the great revival preacher and moody was a family friend and they said you know what let's just take a family vacation right how many times do we do that like after 2020 who was ready like to go (laughs) 
Like, we are much needed. I've seen clips everywhere. Here's us at the beach. Much needed. Much needed. Much, time with family. Much needed. The same thing. They're like, you know what? After this past couple years, let's just get away. So they go over to Europe. And right when they're getting ready to go on a ship, Horatio was going to go with them. But he had this unexpected business thing to happen, come up. So he said, you know what? You guys go. He told his wife and four daughters, you guys go. And I'll get on a boat in a couple of weeks and I'll meet you over there. About four days into the journey... Two ships collide, and 226 passengers drowned, including the four Spafford girls. Anna Spafford, his wife, was rescued and wired her husband a very short message, which began like this, saved and alone, what do I do? Saved and alone, what do I do? Mr. Spafford booked a passage on the next available ship to join his grieving wife. With his ship about four days out into the, into the journey, the captain called Spafford from his cabin and had him come up on deck. And he came up and the captain said that this is where the accident happened. This is where the ship went down and your daughters perished right here. And so he stood there, tears in his eyes, and he took a pen and a piece of paper and he began to write. He wrote the words to a song that we have all heard. He called it, It Is Well With My Soul. And he said said this, and he contrasts these first two lines. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when I have all the peace from God that I could get, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or... When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He had this inner peace. Despite all of the goings on around him, he had a peace inside him that he said, you know what, whatever my lot, I will say it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford felt peace deep within his soul. Even though he hurt deeply at that place, he was right over the spot. He hurt deeply for the loss of his beautiful daughters. Randy, would you come? We're going to close a little bit differently than we normally do. The words will be on the screen. We are going to sing this song together. It is well with my soul. Shunammite woman, you know, her son, her son died right there. He was dead. Dead, dead. Cold, dead, dead. something was wrestling in her soul she had to get to the man of God saying hey what are we going to do about this basically is what she's saying he goes eventually the son is brought back to life by Elisha say pastor why did you why did you take 45 minutes to tell us that story you just told it in 30 seconds (laughs) so this is what I want you to take away from this message 
no matter what comes your way, no matter how bad it seems, this lady's son died, Horatio Spafford, incredible loss. Would you get to a place in your trusting God? Would you make room for God in your life to take control? To get to a place where you have this peace that surpasses all human understanding, although you're upset about things, and right, rightly so, Spafford, yeah, it's incredible loss. And yet he could pen these words that it is well with my soul. Would you stand as we close with this song? It's just us and the piano. If you know it, sing it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul church with my soul it is well it is well with my soul my sin know the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole sing it church is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. 
last verse. And Lord, haste the day when my fate shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so it is well with my soul it is well with my soul it is well it is well with my soul. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here. I pray, Lord, that each person would take these words and would internalize them. And no matter what happens, no matter how life comes, whether sea billows roll with all kinds of tragedy, or whether, Lord, we are on top of the mountain, we would be able to say, it is well with my soul and that Lord one day when you do return and you take those Christ followers to be with you and to reign with you in heaven I pray Lord that that is a time of rejoicing for everyone within the sound of my voice that we would be able to look at you descending from heaven and it would be well with our soul we would be ready to accept Lord that you have come for us we would meet you in the clouds Lord the dead and the and the people who are still here Lord would meet you and would be brought into your heaven, God. And when we see you, when that moment happens, I pray, Lord, that people would be found in you and that we would be able to say, oh, Lord, we've been waiting. Hate, don't haste, Lord, come now. It would be well with our soul when we do see it. We wouldn't be scared. We wouldn't be worried, Lord. We wouldn't be wondering if we measured up, Lord. We, we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Lord, that we are at peace with you. And it is well with our soul. As we go from this place, Lord, may we not depart from your presence. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.